this is the last day of our um, reset series or our morning Facebook devotionals. Um, we may have some things uh, over Christmas from Risen King uh, that'll be on Facebook, but uh, as far as consistent devotions, we will begin again in January. We'll do 40 days of prayer with uh, the Alliance. Uh, there'll be an online devotional for the beginning of the year. Um, so, uh, you know, watch both uh, my personal Facebook page, but also the uh, morning devotional page, Risen King's morning devotional page for uh, beginning 2022 with 40 days of prayer, where um, we will join with the Alliance Family International in praying for 40 days. Something happens when God's people begin to unite in prayer together. So I'd love for you to join me for that. But we want to conclude uh, our series still looking at this idea of Jesus' vision for the church. Um, Paul writes in Ephesians chapter 4, beginning at verse 11, The gifts Jesus gave were that some would be apostles, some prophets, some evangelists, some pastors and teachers. Now here's the purpose of his gifts. To equip the saints, that's all of us who are believers, for the work of ministry, for building up of the body of Christ until all of us come to the unity of faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to maturity, to the measure of the full stature of Christ. We must no longer be children tossed to and fro and blown about by every wind of doctrine, by people's trickery, by their craftiness and deceitful scheming, but speaking the truth in love, we must grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ, from whom the whole body, joined and knitted together by every ligament with which it is equipped, as each part is working properly, promotes the body's growth, in building itself up in love. So as much as and as important as it is to have personal change, it's not it's not just private or individual change. It's it's a community project and a community process. So community is the God-given context for change. Tim Chester uh, in the book, You Can Change, he says the Christian community is the best context for change because it's the context God has given. You understand, the whole of Ephesians 4 is telling you where the resources are for you to be fully functioning in all of your God-given potential to reach the destiny that God has designed for you. It's within the context of the church. Chester goes on to say, The church is a better place for change than a therapy group, a counselor's office, or a retreat center. He's, Chester says, We grasp the love of Christ with all the saints in Ephesians 3.18. Christ gives gifts to the church so we can grow together. Ephesians 4, 7-13. through 13. Well, what does Christian maturity look like? Ephesians 4 says it looks like Jesus. One of the great things about the Christian community is that it gives us models of Christ-like behavior. Of course, no one is perfectly like Jesus, 
but other Christians help us see what it means to walk with God. It's not just godliness we model for one another, but also growth and grace. We model growth as people see us struggling with our own sins and as we turn in faith toward God. Sinclair Ferguson, a great Scottish theologian, says the church is a community in which we receive spiritual help, but also one in which deep-seated problems will come to the surface and will require treatment. We often discover things about our own hearts in the context of church community, which we never anticipated. So in order for, in order for the church to be a community of change, there are some prerequisites that, that Paul talks about in Ephesians 4 and also is talked about in Ephesians 3. How do we grow more like Christ? Well, in Ephesians 4, Paul says we become mature in the faith and in the knowledge of the Son of God. Immaturity, Paul says, involves being tossed and blown about by every wind of new teaching, susceptible to lies so clever that they sound like the truth. That's Ephesians 4.14 from the New Living Translation. Susceptible to lies so clever that they sound like the truth. The world, the flesh, and the devil will whisper lies that sound plausible. Maturity is being able to say, no, that's not the truth about God or about others. It's not the truth about life. I'm not going to think. I'm not going to live that way. So we grow toward maturity by speaking the truth in love. So this is one of the, this is one of the key elements of being a community of repentance or a community with you know, effective change projects is that we have to be a community of truth. Um, this is more than just avoiding lies or avoiding the telling of lies. One of the things that you begin to realize is there are people who are truthful, but they're not, they're not terribly honest. In other words, they're not very open. They're not they're very transparent. And then there are people who are incredibly open and transparent, and they would say, I'm honest. Some would even say honest to a fault. But also, they, you find that sometimes they're not so truthful. They'll tell you everything about their life, but they won't always give you a straight answer. In a community of truth, the reason you can depend and rely on people is because they're both truthful and they're honest. One of the issues that keeps you from the fullness of the Holy Spirit is He is the Spirit of Truth. In other words... He searches the depths of your being uh, in a way uh, by love pushing up what you want to hide, what you want to keep secret. He wants to expose and reveal, not so he can hurt you, but so he can heal you. But also, he, he is truthful in everything. So he's, he's dredging up what you may not want to feel honest about, but he's also convicting you when you are deceit deceitful or deceived, either one. I mean, Paul is really clear that speaking the truth in love is the key to the whole community of change. We build one another up through words that we say. So we have to be intentional about our words. 
The truth is that most of us heard uh, growing up, sticks and stones may break my bones, but words can never hurt me. It's probably the opposite. Sticks and stones may break my bones, and bones heal pretty pretty easily. They hurt. It hurts, but they heal. Whereas words can fester like a poison inside your heart. So what does Paul say? Be intentional about your words. He says, let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths. Listen to this. But only such as is good for building up. Such as fits the occasion. In other words, the words need to fit the situation. That it may give grace that's an amazing, like, that's an amazing grid of evaluation. Is what I'm about to say, is it going to build up? Is it fitting to the occasion? In other words, is it appropriate that what I'm about to say, even if it's honest or if it's truthful in some way, does it fit the occasion? And then this third grid is, does it give grace to the ones who hear? I, I, man, I can imagine that lots of things are not, would not be said and lots of things would have to be intentionally processed before I say them if I'm thinking, how do I, how do I use what I see, what I know, what I feel, what I understand, how do I use it in a way to build people up? How do I wait to say it at the appropriate moment in other words, when I truly have permission of the Spirit to say it, and how do I make sure that what I'm saying has grace? So often we use truth as a weapon. We use truth to punish. And Paul is saying truth is not truth. In a, in a, in a believer's mouth, truth is not truth if it's not to build up if it's not something you've been given permission by the Spirit to speak, and if it doesn't have grace as the realm in which it's speaking. See, our problem is we, we want grace, but we want to be able to punish people. We don't want to be punished, but we, we want and believe we should be able to punish others with our words. You hurt me, so I'm going to hurt you. So we don't think through is what I'm saying being said in the realm of grace or is it in the realm of law, performance, punishment, fear, control? If it's in the realm of law, punishment, fear, and control, it is not giving grace to anyone. See, one of the reasons many of us hide is we, we, we don't trust that we have a community of truth but we really don't trust that we have a community of grace. So Paul, you know, even when he talks about the prophetic in the New Testament, he changes in some ways. He says there's a change in the purpose of the prophetic. See, the Old Testament prophets were speaking inspired words from God that were to be written down and to be treasured as the eternal word of God, the timeless word of God, the logos for all eternity. You and I don't speak those kind of words even when we speak words that are in spirit, inspired by the Holy Spirit. So we're to test our words. And, and we're taught, you know, to test the spirit behind the words that we are saying. Um, but he, Paul, gives this 
incredible, incredible grid. Is what I'm saying encouraging this person? Is it challenging? Is it rebuking the person? Does it console them, counsel them, exhort them? Does it comfort them? In other words, is what I'm saying about me or is what I'm saying about them? And Paul reminds us that this speaking the truth and love is central to change. In verses 17 through 19, he talks all about these underlying causes of sinful behavior, negative emotions. He calls it futile thinking, darkened understanding, ignorant minds, hardened hearts, indulged desires, and continual lust. In other words, he, when we think or believe lies, instead of trusting God's word, and when we desire or worship idols or have idolatrous desires instead of worshiping God, what comes out of our mouths will not be truth, even though we think it's true. Here, I mean, this is, this is Holy Spirit stuff. If you speak the truth, it will have love for the person you're speaking to. And if you truly love the person you're speaking to, you will speak truth. You know, truth is more than just avoiding lies. Paul says, put off all falsehood. Put off, he's basically saying, put off your old self, your old motivations. The old things that used to guide your heart, the appetites of the flesh. And he says, if you do that, you'll be able to speak the truth in love. We should be a community of truth. But that leads us to become a community of repentance. I, I, I just can't ever say enough of what Luther, Martin Luther said on that 95 statements, the 95 theses that he nailed to the door that began the Protestant Reformation. He said the Christian life is a life of repentance. So therefore, we must be a community of repentance. I I've been in church my whole life and I've you know led as a pastor for 35 37 years I think now and I have run into so many people who are afraid of repentance who resist repentance who think basically they have nothing really to repent of and I have yet to see a healthy church that wasn't a community of repentance who believed that change was important um, listen what Paul said to the Ephesian elders in Acts chapter 20. Remember that for three years I did not cease night and day, night or day, to admonish, admonish every one of you with tears. You understand? Here's a church he loves dearly. Here's a church he writes one of the greatest letters, the letter to the Ephesians, one of the greatest letters ever written. And yet, what did he say? Every day I was admonishing. You understand? Admonishing is a pretty strong, pretty emotional word. It has the idea of correction and exhortation and urging, encouragement, all these things. But how did he do so? As he's correcting them, as he's doing that, it says, with tears. In other words, do, when you're speaking the truth, do you tear up? If you have something hard to say or a hard word to deliver, does it, does it make you tear up for that person? And so 
basically when Paul says this in Acts 20, he's saying, this is, this is what it takes. Three years he admonished them with tears. Real change only takes place as we bring our sinfulness into the open. You know, we have real guilt. We have real shame. But Christ has borne our guilt. Christ took on himself our judgment. This is a key. Honesty without condemnation. Love without truth. And this includes self-condemnation. And the enemy of change is self-protection, which comes out of a place of pride, protecting your sense of yourself or your ego. Dietrich Bonhoeffer wrote a book called Life Together, and he really talks about what it is to become a community of grace. He started a community with some other people of seminary students because uh, the Nazis had taken over the state church. They wanted to have a confessing church, a church they felt was authentic in the face of the Nazi um, oppression. And so he and some others established a community to train seminarians uh, so they could be pastors. And one of the things that's really powerful in the book is he said, he says how hard it was and how, in many ways, he had this kind of illusion that, man, this is going to be great. We're going to be in community. We're all going to be in ministry. It's going to be fantastic. Instead, he said it was, it was horrible. It was horrible. And that everyone became disillusioned with each other. Everyone, you know, got on each other's nerves. It was very, very difficult. It's a wonderful book. And so part of what uh, I would say Bonhoeffer's premise is, is that in some ways it's better to go ahead and get disillusioned with people sooner than later. To put someone on a pedestal, to believe that they're something they're not, is the enemy of real community. And so he speaks of a community of grace. That if I bring my expectations that you should be a certain way, that you should speak a certain way, act a certain way, then I'm going to be disillusioned. And I'm going to be disappointed. And I'm not going to have true community with you. Or if I have expectations that I have to be extraordinary or you have to be extraordinary, then what happens is we lose the beauty of just having ordinary people having extraordinary Holy Spirit, which leads to an extraordinary encounter and experience with one another. But we are still these people who must live in a community of grace. Here's what he says. The pious fellowship, and he's saying this in a negative way, the pious fellowship permits no one to be a sinner. So everybody must conceal his sin from himself and from the fellowship. We're not allowed to be sinners. Many Christians are unthinkably horrified when a real sinner is discovered among the righteous. So we remain alone with our sin, living in lies and hypocrisy. But the fact is, we are sinners. I was having a conversation with a younger pastor, and it was after the discovery of numerous famous pastors who were having affairs or doing different things, and it was disheartening. And it was disheartening to me, it was disheartening to this pastor. 
But in that moment, I also, I also said, did we think they weren't sinners? Did we think they didn't have these issues? Did we think somehow because they were leaders, you know, and we're, we're angry that they were discovered to be real sinners? But isn't that, and I'm not saying they should be pastors. I'm not saying they should be leaders. But isn't that what the gospel is for? When we discover that we're sinners, isn't the remedy, I mean, is the remedy condemnation? Is the remedy to say they, are destroy, they should be destroyed? Or is the remedy still the grace of God even for real sinners? So what happens so often is because we have these unrealistic views of the community, of the church, when it's actually discovered that there are sinners among the righteous, we, we really don't know what to do. But the problem is, many of us, because we believe wrongly about grace and about community, we live hiding our own sins. We live in lies, we live in hypocrisy. Instead of a community of grace, we have a community of pretenders. See, we, we really can't be communities of repentance, or we can only be communities of repentance if we're communities of grace. But that means that it has to be safe enough, and that's not an easy thing, but it has to be safe enough. And we have to have people who are safe enough that we can be honest, open, and transparent about our struggles. See, we can be, we can be communities of repentance if we are communities of grace. We see one another as we really are. We begin to really model to each other grace in our welcome of sinners, just as Jesus did. You know what Jesus is? Probably top, at least top five accusations against Jesus was he was a friend of sinners. It means that you and I don't pose as a good person. Instead, I portray myself. You portray yourself as you truly are, as I truly am. A person who has received the grace of God. Um, I've been talking about flourishing. And I've been using Mark Sayers' three axes of flourishing. Freedom, purpose, meaning, the second, community, relationships. And I've been talking so much about community and relationships. But the truth of the matter is, that all three of these need to be exercised and experienced in your life in equal, me- equal measure. So we have to be freely honest, freely open. But we can do that if we really are coming to the place where our deepest identity is the identity we receive, not one we achieve that we really begin to believe we're a child of God, that, that knowing we're sinners, but that the gospel says that God makes sinners into saints. Knowing our weaknesses, yet, yet seeing even in our weaknesses got Christ's strength being perfected. This is all grace. This is all faith. So personal renewal is not found when you hide or you present a false image of yourself. Personal renewal is found as you turn to God and you stay there 
until you counter, encounter him or, or so that you will experience his life-giving presence. Willingly, freely aligning your life to the identity he has given you and to the purpose and mission. And then revival is when personal renewal goes viral. When, when whole communities are aligned to the purposes of God. When a whole communities are communities of truth, they're communities of repentance, they're communities of grace. Um, in, and in the late 1990s, I got to go to uh, Kali. And it was during those last few years of the 1990s, there was an incredible citywide revival. Uh, my very first day there, uh, a, a pastor picked me up to take me to his home where I was going to stay. And this pastor told me confidently, he said, as famous as Kali was for the drug trade, it would be known for the grace of God and for the grace of God to be shown to that city. And he said, where sin abounds, grace abounds all the more. And at first I was... I was skeptical, but for 10 straight days, I and doing ministry day, afternoon, night, we saw thousands of decisions for Christ. I personally saw hundreds of instantaneous healing miracles. And I was with a team of 26 international evangelists and pastors. We led an all-night prayer meeting of, of close to 50,000 people. We had Christian concerts in stadiums that filled, you know, 20,000 or more. One of the most exciting things that happened was every day we met for five days straight with 500 Colombian evangelists who were, who were going to scatter out through the city and through the nation. Every single message I preached, every prayer I prayed, every single one of them seemed to have these extraordinary results. We saw answers that felt like we were living in the book of Acts of the Apostles. I'd never experienced anything like that. But there's a story behind this. There was an evangelist. His name was Dr. Julio Ruibal. In 1978, he started a church in Cali. He and his wife, Ruth, uh, were key instruments in promoting unity among Christian leaders and pastors in Cali. In an effort to unite Kali's evangelical community, Rui Bal organized several all-night prayer vigils that ended up, each one of them started drawing thousands, tens of thousands of people. Christians in that community believed it was their unity and these prayers that led to the fall of Kali's drug cartel in 1994, 1995, transforming a city once notorious for crime and violence. This family, the Rui Bal's story, has touched thousands of lives. They began with prayer, but out of that prayer came the building of relationships among folks that did not talk to each other previously. They bridged the gaps. They began working together, speaking as a unified voice. All these pastors came together to overcome the challenges. Uh, Pastor Julio received death threats. He was known as the Apostle of the Andes, and he was gunned down.
outside of church in 1995 by people who opposed the spiritual formation transformation he was seeking. But his death was not was not in vain. It spurred the pastors in Kali to break down all the denominational barriers and to work together. Later that year, the Kali cartels drug lords were captured or killed or turned themselves into authorities. Those involved in the revival say this was a direct result of prayer and Christians working together. Though he was killed in December 1995, giving his life as a martyr for the gospel of Jesus Christ, I personally got to witness the fruit of this man's ministry and the effect that his life had on the churches. His sacrifice and his passion caused the pastors personal renewal that became regional revival. At his funeral, at Pastor Julio's funeral, the pastors made a covenant of unity that stayed strong and functional. When I went there with a team of 20 or so international ministers, we actually partnered with 160 churches in Cali. I've never seen such a display of unity as I did in that city. Why do I tell you such a story of victory, but also a story of sacrifice? Because we all have this part to play in building a home for God. We need one another in order to be a healthy, growing church. This means that everyone else needs you, and you need everyone else. You need to help others change. The majority of us do not become martyrs. It's not usually what Jesus asks, but always asks, he always asks for all of you, since he gave you all of him. Pastor Gabe Tringale collaborated on a new worship song called No Holding Back. And this song expresses well the role that Jesus has for you in his agenda for change. I'll close with this. Jesus is our message. Forever you're the same. Fan your fire within us to speak your holy name. He's our savior. He's our healer. He's our power within. I'm alive now in him. All of you for all the world. All we have. No holding back. All of you. For all the world. All we have. No holding back.